Before we get started, I have been blessed the past few weeks to teach in students on Wednesday nights, and I hear that Ola FCA is here. We would love to invite you on Wednesday nights to come and be a part of that. I want you to know, church family, you have some remarkable students. Um, it has blessed my heart tremendously to be in there with them, teaching to them, um, but they have taught me so much more than I'll probably ever teach them. Uh, one of the things I love about our youth is how hungry they are. They're just... They're just more vulnerable, I think, than, than we are. The older we get, I think, the more guarded we become. But our student ministry is a phenomenal, phenomenal ministry that we have here at this church. And I'm so glad I get to be in there with them on Wednesday nights. If you remember, throughout the month of January, we said at the very beginning that the whole goal of this month um, is that we want to help you grow deeper and deeper in your relationship with God, okay? So we said at the beginning of January, January the 1st, that by the end of January, our hope and our prayer is that we look more like Jesus at the end than we do at the beginning. Well, here we are. We're at the end of January, and I want you to ask yourself this question, like, how is the trajectory of my life looking right now? Am I headed towards the direction I want to go, or have there been some hiccups? And what do I mean by that? We've talked on the first week about what it looks like to have life in Christ. We talked about the importance of Bible study and prayer as we grow in our intimacy with Christ. We gave you a Bible reading plan. Some of you, you crushed that thing for the first two weeks, right? And by week three, you got somewhere around Leviticus and you just gave up. You just wove the like, white flag and, and you're done. Um, but, but now is the time for you to realign yourself, to get back on track, and to try to pick up and continue to read, continue to set aside time to pray. Then in week two, Jesse taught us on life and community. My question to you is, did you take that next step to look more like Jesus? Did you take the next step of, maybe for you it's joining the life of a local church. Maybe this is the place you've been attending. This is the place you want to become a part of. You believe in our mission. You want to get behind it. You love what God's doing here. And maybe it's time for you to cross that threshold and become a part of our faith family. For others of you, maybe you've been here. You just don't have a life group. You're not living life among God's people in the regular rhythms of your life. And you know that the next step for you is to join a life group. We have Group Connect for you. Hopefully you attended that. Hopefully you took your next step and you're now plugged into a life group. If you're not, the clock hasn't run out. Okay, you still have time to do that. Uh, next steps table, you can do that at the end. Then we talked about life of generosity. How men and women of faith should be the most generous people on the planet because we're the recipients of the most generous gift given by such an incredible God who gave us his very own son in the person Jesus Christ. So as we see the sacrifice that, uh, that he made, we too want to model and emulate his life so we should be the most benevolent and most generous people on the planet. And then last week, we talked about what it looked like to live a life of service. How Jesus in Mark 10.45 said, I did not come to be served, and said I came to serve. And the extent of his service was, and that I might be a ransom for many. And we said that we can't put boundaries and borders on the, the service that we have. You have been gifted. God has given you a place to contribute, not just to come and spectate, but a place where you can give your gifts and your place of service to the life of the church and fulfill a specific role so that the gospel can continue to advance. And today we're going to come to the fifth characteristic of a disciple. That fifth characteristic is a life on mission. A life on mission. That if you are a child of God, your life should be lived in such a way that is putting him on full display before a watching world. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 4 
this morning. Uh, this is a very familiar text of Scripture, uh, so that many of you are going to be familiar with it. Some of you might be introduced to it for the very first time. Uh, but out of the gate, what I want to say this morning is this, is when we talk about a life on mission, many of us don't know what a life on mission actually is. So let's define that right up front this morning. What do we mean when we say a life on mission? To live on mission means to make a conscious effort to be intentional in sharing the gospel with those around you. Okay, so some of you are more familiar with the term evangelism. This term, this phrase, life on mission, this term evangelism, they're kind of synonymous. It's when we make a conscious effort in and of ourselves to be intentional with the people around us in sharing the gospel with them. My question for you this morning is this. What would it look like if you and I were to dream bigger? What would it look like if you and I did not get comfortable with the men and the women that were in this room and we had a vision that went further than the people in this room? What would it look like if you and I became people who were exceedingly ambitious about winning the neighbors and our nations to Jesus Christ? What would happen in your life, what would happen in my life if we became serious about the mission of God? One person said it like this to me a long, long time ago. He said, limited vision benefits no one. If you can't see beyond the borders of your own life, it benefits no one. What would it look like at Eagle's Landing if every single chair in this auditorium were occupied by a worshiper of Jesus? What would it look like if your neighborhood, your workplace, were completely saturated in the gospel and God put you there to do that? What would it look like? If the people that you did life with on a daily basis were, were starting to come to Jesus because you were declaring and proclaiming the gospel boldly in front of a watching world. See, our vision must be greater than what we see even in this room. Our vision must be greater than what we see even in our immediate groups that we do life with. And we're going to talk about this term, life on mission, this phrase, life on mission, today. But instead of walking through John chapter 4, by the way, Matt Dern and I, who you know is our worship leader here, we have a love-hate relationship. Um, I, I love Matt, by the way. Uh, but, but see, what I try to do with Matt is I try to challenge him. I'm like, hey, Matt, you got to fit communion, baptism, scripture reading, a call to worship, four songs. You know, I, I give him all this. you got to fit that into 30 minutes. And he's like, there's no way I can fit that into 30 minutes. So what he does is he just goes over his time. And he says, you know what, Trey, I love you so much that you got to fit your 40-minute sermon in 30 minutes. So we, we just have that relationship, but I kid, because he will beat himself up. I, I totally kid about that. Um, man, God has been moving today. The Spirit has been thick today. I don't ever want to apologize for that, um, but I'm going to get cre creative and clever today with how we do this. So I'm just going to not read John chapter 4 its entirety today. Do that on your own this week, okay? Do that on your own. Uh, study this text. It's a familiar passage of Scripture, but it's beautiful, okay? Now I'm wasting my own time. All right, so John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Some of you are familiar with that story, Jesus and the woman at the well. So Jesus, he's headed from Judea all the way up to Galilee, and he stops through Samaria. And when he gets to Samaria, the Bible tells us that he's weary. He is absolutely tired and exhausted. So he goes and he sits down at Jacob's well. And while he's sitting there relaxing, maybe just getting some, caught up on some sleep or whatever, while he's relaxing, 
this woman comes to the well. And Jesus engages this woman in conversation. And the text ends with us learning that this woman comes to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior. But not only her, the entire village comes to know Jesus as its Lord and Savior as a result of Jesus spending time with this Samaritan woman. So that is a summary, a very brief summary of John chapter 4. But what I want to talk about today are, are what are the events that led to Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman? What are some things that we can see in the life of Jesus that if we start to emulate in our own lives, we might see someone come to know Christ through our ministry or see an entire village, an entire community come to know Christ through our ministry? What are some things that we see in Jesus that we need to see in us if we're going to see our lives lived on mission? That's where we're headed today. There are three things I want to show you in this text that help us live our life on mission, okay? The first one, is this. A life on mission is aware of divine appointments. A life on mission is aware of divine appointments. Let's read the first three verses together. It says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. So Jesus and the disciples, just like I told you in the summary, they are leaving Judea where they have done ministry. And this ministry that they have done there was so impactful that you have these Pharisees, these legalistic group of people who are complaining because now Jesus is baptizing more people than they are. That sounds so Baptist, doesn't it? I mean, amongst churches, like, we can't work together. We get upset and jealous and bitter because other churches are baptizing more people than we are. Like, John was a Baptist, purely, simply put, okay? But here we got the Pharisees. They're complaining about this. But I love how John puts this in parentheses. If you notice in your Bible, uh, verse 2 is actually parenthetically said. Why is that? John wants us to know that Jesus' primary ministry wasn't baptism. That Jesus' primary ministry was gospel advancement through gospel proclamation. See, baptism is only a symbol that someone has placed their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. So the two people you saw get baptized today, they were just declaring before the world, I'm a follower of Christ. That's what, just like I wear this ring. I'm a married man. I'm off the market. Not that any of you care, but I'm off the market. The same thing is true. They're declaring before a watching world, like, I don't belong to the enemy no more. I now belong to Christ. I have new life in him. That's why we celebrate when baptisms take place, because we're seeing them go public with their faith. So here Jesus is. He has to pass through Samaria, verse 4. Now, when you read verse 4, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes the, the way that things are said in Scripture calls me to stumble a little bit. And when I read this, it was like, he had to pass through Samaria. It was kind of like, hey, I, I'm late to work because I had to use the bathroom and stop at the quickie store, you know? Like, it, it makes me think that way. And I know that's a graphic analogy, but listen to what he's saying. I had to pass through. You, you can either interpret this one or two ways. He had to pass through as a necessity. Judea, you got uh, Galilee where he's headed, so he had to pass through. Samaria. If we're going to go to Roswell, Georgia, we're going to have to pass through the city of Atlanta to get there. But let's just be honest. None of us want to go through the city of Atlanta, especially at 4 o'clock on the afternoon, right? So you would be saying that, like, man, I had to pass through Atlanta to go to Roswell. But there's another way of saying it. It's more like not necessarily necessity. You have to do it. But it's more of like an inconvenience. <laughs> I had to do it. 
You know, you know, and sometimes your necessities are inconveniences. Some of you know what that's like. So what that would be is an inconvenience would be, I usually take the bypass and go around Atlanta, but I had to pass through Atlanta because the bypass was closed down. You follow me? So it's a necessity or it's an inconvenience. But here's the beauty of this text. No matter how you interpret it, if this was a necessity for him to go through Samaria or if this was an inconvenience for him to go through Samaria, he was going to look for divine appointments wherever he was no matter what the convenience or necessities were. And that's what we have to learn from Jesus, is even in the inconveniences of our life, we are still to be looking for divine appointments. Even in the necessities, we have to go to work. And at our workplace, God can use us. We don't have to have fender benders, but they happen, and they're inconveniences. But even in those fender benders, God can use us. I mean, there's no better time to share your faith than while you're sitting there waiting for the patrolman to get there 30 minutes later. Like, just sit there and share the gospel with a person that accidentally hit you or you accidentally hit. You know what I mean? Jesse Wellover, that was for you. Jesse got the fender bender this week, and I'm kidding. Um, he did get the fender bender this week. He didn't share Jesus. He called me. <laughs> but that's just a side story. Um, but anyway, our staff's going to hate me after today, by the way. Um, but I love them. That's why I pick on them. But anyway, so you follow what's happening? Inconvenience, necessity. Jesus was all about looking for a divine appointment. And I started to think about this in my life. You know, sometimes I get bothered because my internet goes down and doesn't work the way I want it to work. So I complain. I call AT&T. And I stay on the phone with them for like hours. I started to think, man, what if God set that up for me strategically to have a conversation about Jesus with the AT&T guy? Like, he can't resolve my issue, but you know what? At least I could probably resolve his. It's a true story. He's not fixing my internet, but I can at least lead him to Jesus, right, and help him have hope and faith. But I thought about all the inconveniences of life that I should be taking advantage of. And one time, I was remembering we were in Wake Forest, And Kayla and I lived there, and we were there to plant a church, and we moved into our first home ever. And as we moved into this home, we got a knock on our door from a guy who was trying to sell us an ADT alarm system. And that guy, he stayed at our house for about three hours that night, and if I'm lying, I'm dying. (laughs) He stayed there forever. But he stayed there so long because he had went through his spill of sharing his alarm, you know, stuff with us. And then after that, we got into our spill of why we were here in Wake Forest and how we would love to share Jesus with him. That led into the next day, him coming back to our house with his wife and his kid. And we started to develop a relationship with them. They started coming to our small group. They started coming to our church. And in some ways, their life was starting to change as a result of now encountering God's people. And that's not to put me on display. It's just an example of what it looks like to take advantage of even, you know, looking for God's appointments around us, divine appointments around us. So the first thing we have to understand is a life on mission is always aware of divine appointments. Geographically speaking, traveling through Samaria for Jesus was a necessity. But practically speaking, it was more of an inconvenience. Why do you say that, Trey? The Jews did everything that they could to avoid Samaria. The Jews didn't want, in fact, if you go read most commentators, it will say that they would actually travel through the Jordan River. They didn't have like ferries. They would drive through the Jordan River to get to Samaria just, or to get to Galilee just to avoid going through Samaria. So they would take a different route and avoid at all costs. The undertone here that you hear is that they had to pass through Samaria. So in both the necessities and the inconveniences of life, one thing that we can learn 
is that Jesus was always looking for divine appointments, and so should we. The second thing that I want to show you real quickly this morning is not only is a life of mission aware of divine appointments, but secondly, a life on mission eliminates all excuses. Eliminates all excuses. Look at verse 5. It says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So when we come to verse 5, 6, and 7, what we learn here is that we encounter a exhausted Jesus. He was weary and tired from ministry. He was wearied and tired from his journey. Some might say he was on the verge of burnout. In fact, Jesus was so weary and tired that in verse 8 it tells us that the disciples went into town to get some food and Jesus just decided to stay back so that he could recline at the well. So Jesus is taking a break, maybe he's getting a cat nap, and then he's going to continue on this journey all the way up to Galilee. But while he's sitting there at the well, the Bible tells us that a woman approaches the well. Instead of Jesus saying something like, I would say, I'm too tired to talk to this woman, Instead of Jesus saying something like, I do ministry all the time, now's the time for me to rest and take a break. Instead of Jesus giving any excuse for why he can't have a conversation with this woman, what does he do? He engages the woman. His heart was so big for people that he never really considered how tired he really was. Instead, he simply saw this as an opportunity to tell someone else about himself. And Ortland, she... She has passed, but she was the wife of, many of you know Ray Ortland. Okay, this is the mom. Uh, Ann Ortland, she was a best-selling women's author. She founded a ministry called Renewal uh, Ministries. Okay, listen to what she says in one of her books. I thought this was phenomenal. She says, nowhere in the Bible are we told to slow down and take it easy. We are told to press on. We're told to not grow weary in doing good. We're told to run our race with endurance, and the list goes on. Our greatest rest and recreation will be ours in heaven. Most souls are won by tired people. The best sermons are preached by tired men. The world is being evangelized by tired missionaries. Christian organizations are being ran by tired men and tired women. You show me a vacation Bible school and I'll show you some tired people. We will never do great things for God until we have learned to minister even when we are tired. If Jesus didn't use weariness and tiredness as an excuse to engage this woman, you and I can't use weariness and tiredness as an excuse not to engage our coworkers and neighbors with the gospel of Jesus. See, Moses offered excuses as an attempt to wiggle his way out of God's plan. Think about it. Who am I to go to Pharaoh, he said in Exodus chapter 3. I don't know enough, he continued to say in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. What if I get rejected, he said in Exodus chapter 4. I don't have the talents, I have a speech impediment, he said again in Exodus chapter 4. See, like Moses, we often make a bunch of excuses not to do the very things that God has called us to do. Can I tell you this morning that there are two truths about excuses? The first one is that they are rooted in the lack of love. My excuses are rooted in the lack of love. Excuses stem from a lack of love. You know why? Because excuses are just there to avoid responsibility. If I know that I'm supposed to do something, I make an excuse that I don't have to do it. And when the gospel of Jesus declares to me, not ask or request of me, but 
but commands me to go and make disciples of all nations, I like to say things like, well, I'm just not skilled in that way. Like my personality, they type it in A, it's a C, it's a, you know, all those different things. I just don't have that gift. And I try to make excuses, but what I'm really trying to do is avoid my responsibility as a child of God in going and making disciples. So it's rooted in a lack of love. The second thing about excuses is excuses anger God. When Moses was presented with all of these excuses, what did God say in Exodus 4.14? It says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. The God who is slow to anger, Exodus tells us in Exodus chapter 34, has reached his bullying point because Moses was making excuses. That's interesting to me. What did we learn from this? What we learned is that Jesus didn't waste his energy on insignificant things. Jesus wasn't so busy with his own individual hobbies that he didn't have time to move the mission of God forward. He stored up and used his energy on living out the mission of God before a watching world. In church, what we can learn from this is we too can't make excuses if the mission of God is going to advance. So the first thing we have to be aware of is divine appointments. The second thing we have to be aware of is our excuses that we tend to make. And there's a third thing if we're going to live life on mission. The third thing is this, a life on mission is committed to gospel intentionality. A life on mission is committed to gospel intentionality. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. That's where we got that a second ago. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, that's in parentheses because we need to pay attention to it. We need to ask these questions like, well, why don't Jews have any dealings with Samaritans? Well, let me give you a little bit of context here. The Jews regarded the Samaritans as despised half-breeds. That's what they looked at them as. The Assyrians came in, and you know the story. They rampaged the northern kingdom. This is around 722 B.C. And what they did is they transported the Jews and dispersed them all throughout the world. So the result was an intermingling of people of different races in different communities. These people would get to know each other. These people would fall in love with each other. And these people would eventually marry each other. And they would become what's known as a mixed race. And when they became a mixed race, they lost their national identity as Jews. So because of this, the Jews considered these people, the Samaritans, as outcasts. That's why they wanted to avoid them. They wanted to go across the river to get to Galilee, not through Samaria to get to Galilee. You might remember Ezra. Ezra developed a segregation policy that excluded the Samaritans and those of mixed backgrounds. Now, there, this creates a bitter hostility, as you can imagine, between the two groups. But listen, that's only half the story. Only half. Not only did the Jews forbid speaking to Samaritans, but the Jewish men were forbidden to speak to women even if it was their own wives in this public setting. So here, Jesus is pushing against the norms of culture. He's pushing against what the people around him have normalized. He's different, church family. Jesus isn't doing what's socially acceptable to the society in which he lived. He speaks to this woman just as God spoke to Hagar. And what we must understand, there's two things that we can see here in Jesus' intentionality with this woman. The first is Jesus crossed barriers to deliver the gospel. But secondly, 
Hearts are one to Jesus when barriers are crossed. So not only was Jesus willing to cross the cultural barrier, but because he did, people came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So on one hand, Jesus is doing what's absolutely unthinkable to these people. But on the other hand, this woman is amazed. In fact, she's completely stunned by Jesus' behavior. All of the hatred and vindictiveness built up between these two races came crashing down when Jesus demonstrated a simple yet radical gesture of loving someone despite their radical differences. Do you realize, church, that this is exactly what happens when you and I live with gospel intentionality? That all barriers that exist between races and socioeconomic classes, all barriers come crashing down because the gospel of Jesus does that kind of work. So what does this say to us? Our hearts must be so full of love that we're willing to do whatever it takes to see people of all races, all economic backgrounds, all neighborhoods come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What makes the bride of Christ so attractive is that the gospel crosses all of these barriers. It crosses an economic barrier. It crosses a social barrier. It crosses the racial barrier. It crosses the barrier of where people don't look like us, act like us, or even enjoy the things that we enjoy. It moves all of that to the side. And it says we have to love people enough to win them to Jesus. Do you see why limited vision benefits no one. I had a goal in high school, I shared this with the students, that before I graduated high school, I wanted everyone in my school to know where I stood with Jesus. And when I committed to that goal as a junior going into my senior year, the summer before my senior year, when I committed to that goal, I didn't realize how ambitious it was. I had a high school of about 2,000 students, Northside High School in One Robins, Georgia at that time had about 2,000 students. And I didn't realize that the goal I had set for my life was rather ambitious because I didn't naturally cross, you know, intersect my life with ninth graders, 10th graders, or maybe even 11th graders, except with some maybe extracurricular type classes or things like that. So I started to think about how ambitious this goal was, and midway through my high school year, I realized, man, I've probably shared Jesus with like three people, and I still got... What is that, 1,997 more to go or something like that? And I was failing miserably. And through a set of unfortunate circumstances, a girl in our school went on a field trip. On the field trip, she walked across the street to lunch, and as she walked across the street, she was struck by a car and fatally killed. We came back as a student body, and we kind of reflected on the life of Nisi. What's her name? We came in an auditorium just like this, except it didn't have these center aisles. You could only get into the seats from either side. And I remember sitting in the very back in the very middle, and Mr. Dyson, who was our principal, took a microphone and laid it down on the stage and said, I want you to come and share stories that you remember about Nisi's life, because I feel like this will help you heal as we celebrate, memorialize this girl that has now gone to be with Jesus one, grateful for a principal who loved the Lord, but two, grateful for the opportunity that now there's a mic in the middle of the stage with everybody in my high school in that room. And as I was failing miserably at sharing Jesus, now I had my opportunity. And guess what I tried to do, church family? 
I tried to make excuses. Uh, now's not the time. This isn't the place. Meanwhile, my heart is beating inside of my chest, like pounding inside of my chest. My hands have gotten sweaty because I know that the Spirit of God is saying, Trey, this is the moment where everyone in your school can hear the gospel of Jesus. Either you can say yes or you can say no, but the moment is now. And I remember getting up out of that seat. I didn't even walk through people. I literally climbed over the chair, walked all the way down. I grabbed that mic, stood on the stage. I have no clue what I said. I promise you, I blacked out. I have no clue. I might not have said anything. I don't know. But I grabbed that mic, and I started to talk, and I told them about Jesus. And I remember going back to my classroom, and my teacher giving me a little slip of paper to go see one of my coaches. And I went to see my coach, and my coach told me, we're bringing in some uh, youth counselors, because we have people asking so many questions about what it looks like to follow the Lord. And church, again, I don't say this about me. I say this as a vivid story for you to understand. Limited vision benefits no one. Maybe today, if you're going to live your life on mission, God is saying, I want your workplace to look different, and I'm going to set up the path for you to do that if you'll just trust and obey me. But you have to have a vision to win your workplace to Jesus. Maybe for you it's your neighborhood. And God's saying, I want your neighborhood to look different as a result of you living there. But you have to have a vision that sees beyond what you see right now. And you're thinking through, what can I do to get the gospel in front of my neighbors? And through that, God will begin to work. And let me give you an example of this. In Wake Forest, the same house I mentioned a moment ago, we set up just like you do, a tent and some coffee in our neighborhood on Halloween. And as we did that, we had neighbors that came by. One a specific neighbor came by, she and her two daughters, and her husband was following in a truck right behind them. And I remember my wife struck up a conversation with uh, the lady and the kids. The kids were playing, and we started talking to them about church, inviting them to church. And I went over to the truck. The guy had ACL surgery, so he was riding around with his family. Didn't know these people, had never met these people before. Two weeks goes by, and we get a random Facebook message that this lady wants to meet with my wife. They meet up, and she says, hey, I found out my husband has been having an affair. He's got a sexual addiction that he's never dealt with. Later, about a week later, the husband reaches out to me. I meet him at Chick-fil-A, have an encounter, conversation with him, point him to Jesus. You know, through that through just setting up a tent and some hot chocolate on Halloween night, being intentional with our neighbors, all of a sudden, we were able to grow. This is my wife's best friend now, by the way. They're, they're extremely close, best friend. Their family is still together. They've worked through this. The husband has, you know, worked on his addiction, and the, the, the family's thriving and flourishing in their local church, serving it together. They started coming with us. All I'm trying to tell you is we had to have a vision for that. And we had to put ourselves out there a little bit for God to be able to work. And church family, the same calling that God has placed on me is the calling he's placed on you. Everybody who names the name of Jesus is a minister of the gospel. That's not a duty reserved for pastors. It's a duty of every child of God. So my question is where 
does God want you to be a minister of the gospel at? And how are you going to be used to advance the gospel of Jesus further? But just like Jesus was present at the well, he didn't just stay there and sit there. He verbally spoke out. He proclaimed the gospel. It's not enough just to be present. You actually have to be willing to proclaim the gospel as well. And then marvelous things begin to happen. And Jesus begins to work in ways that you and I cannot even describe. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, this is how we're going to end this morning. I want you to ask yourself one simple question. Where does the Lord want to use me to win men and women, boys and girls, to the gospel? Some of you, you've already answered this question. You're doing this in gym classes, teaching aerobics at your local gym. Others of you, you're trying to be strategic with your neighbors or strategic with your workplace. My doctor, my former doctor who was in our church, every time I'd go see him, he made sure to talk about Jesus with me. And I know that he did that with many, many patients, Dr. Dickerson. And you know, that's what it means when we use where God has placed us to advance the gospel and proclaim it to patients that are walking through the door. If our community is going to look different, it's going to happen because our neighborhoods look different. If our neighborhoods are going to look different, it's going to happen, listen to me, because our churches look different. It's going to mean that you and I are willing to cross whatever boundary, whatever border, whatever barrier that's put in front of us to take the gospel to places that have not yet seen it or heard it. And as a result, we watch God begin to do what we could not even fathom in and of ourselves. So, Father, we come to you tonight and we pray that there's two things that we want to do. We want to pray that you would give us divine appointments. And we want you to give us the ability to obey when those divine appointments exist. So here we are, God, as, as your church, we're asking you, first, give us those appointments. Let us see them clearly. Let the Spirit of God speak loudly in our hearts and our lives. And secondly, when those appointments are in front of us, and our palms get sweaty, and our hearts feel like they're beating out of our chest, and we know that you want us to share Jesus with them. God, give us the boldness and the courage to obey. And as a result of that, would you allow us to see many men, and many women, and many boys and girls come to know you? And wouldn't it be so beautiful, God, if we had people literally standing outside the doors who were eager to get inside to worship you? God, we believe you can, we believe you will. And we're asking you to do a work that only you're capable of doing. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.